0: Seeing the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ through the eyes of Isaiah. This is fascinating uh, because Isaiah uh, was a prophet in the Old Testament. He lived 700 years before Jesus was born. We looked at a portion from Isaiah 6, 6 chapter 6, during the first week of advent we looked at isaiah chapter 9 the second week of advent and uh, we're going to be looking at isaiah we're going to be jumping to isaiah chapter 57 this morning we're going to be looking at isaiah chapter 57 verses 12 to 21 uh, the verses are going to come up for us on screen and uh, i have requested uh, divya to read the passage out for us uh, over to Divya,
1: i will declare your righteousness and your deeds but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, Whose inhabit eternity, those name is ho- whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him, a contrite and holy spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the country. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I, will, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his way, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. Create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. I will heal him, but the wicked are like tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says the God, for the wicked.
0: Amen. This is God's word. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Divya. Allow me to pray for a minute. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. And uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit will come and uh, infuse your word into the depths of our heart, that we might be transformed more and more in the image and likeness of your Son, Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Who is God talking to in this passage? What kind of people is God addressing in this passage? Verses 17 and 18 give us the answer. He went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. God is talking to people who are struggling in their faith and walk with God. God is talking to people who are slowly drifting away from him. In fact, the verse is pretty pointed. God is singling out those who are backsliding. God is singling out those who are struggling in their faith and walk with God. But the amazing thing, the amazing thing here is that even though God is singling them out, he is not making them squirm in their seats. On the contrary, God is washing away their shame and filling them with sweet hope. I have seen your ways, says the Lord. You are struggling. I know it. I see it. But I will heal you. Only Jesus Christ can call us out on our darkest sins and yet fill our hearts with the brightest hope, not shame and not condemnation, but bright hope. Imagine being caught red-handed Uh, cheating in the exams. Visualize this for a moment. Just think of the feelings, the emotions we feel uh, if at all uh, you're you're caught cheating uh, uh, in an exam. Rather than disqualify you, the man who has caught you lovingly tells you that he's going to tutor you for the next year and help you clear the exam with top marks. That's kind of what's happening um, in this verse. This is the gospel hope for those who are struggling. God sees all of our sin and struggles and desires to heal us. Maybe backsliding is not how you would describe yourselves right now. Or maybe you do identify with that phrase. Either way, all of us, especially this year, we'll have to acknowledge that we have struggled in our faith. It's not been an easy year. And there are two ways to deal with the struggles and our struggles and our failures in 2020. The first way, first wrong way to deal with our struggles and our failures is to be crushed by our failures, to give up, to lose hope, to withdraw, To be ashamed. The second wrong way to deal with our struggles and failures is to deny our failures, to ignore them, to pretend we didn't fail at all, to to brazen it out. And these are two wrong ways to deal with our failures and our struggles in our faith, in our walk with God. The passage we just read from Isaiah chapter 57 shows us the third, the correct gospel way of dealing with our sin our struggles and our failures with that as the main idea of the sermon i would like to draw three things for us from this passage first how god reveals himself to those struggling in faith second what god desires to do for those struggling in faith and how can we respond so how God reveals himself to those struggling in faith, what God desires to do for those struggling in faith, and how can we respond? Let's start with the first thing, how God reveals himself to those struggling with faith. The crux of the answer to this question is in verse 15. And that's really the, 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 the center of this passage that we're looking at, verse 15. For thus says, the one who's high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, says God. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Look at the first line in that verse. Thus says the one that is God speaking, who is high and lifted up. High and lifted up. Does that phrase high and lifted up ring a bell? It short, This phrase, high and lifted up, is designed to immediately trigger a recollection of Isaiah's terrifying yet comforting encounter with God that we saw in chapter 6 in the, in the first sermon in, in the series. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple when Isaiah sees God like this immediately he cries out we saw this in chapter six woe is me I am lost I'm a man of unclean lips and only when Isaiah came to this moment of reality of who he was seeing his sinfulness sinful nature within himself only then did God send heavenly creatures to cleanse and free Isaiah of his sins. God cleansed Isaiah, but not without Isaiah seeing God's holiness and becoming acutely aware of his own struggles, of his own sinfulness. And so we shouldn't expect the comfort of the Lord without being confronted with his holiness. We shouldn't expect the comfort of the Lord, that's the next slide, without being confronted with his holiness. But Why? Why is this? Why is this? If God does not reveal his holiness to us, we will never appreciate his grace and mercy. Apart from the holiness of God, we cannot really, um, his, his love, his mercy, just makes no sense at all. This holy God, who is high lifted up, this God whose, whose presence should terrify us, This God who inhabits eternity. This God whose name is holy. Who is a consuming fire in his holiness. This God who dwells in a high and holy place. This very God with heat and contrite sweat. This God who is high and holy also dwells with she who is of a lowly and contrite spirit. God reveals himself to those who are struggling in two vivid and contrasting images. He is the God who dwells in a high and holy place. Make no mistake about it. But he is also the God who reveals himself, who dwells among the lowly and humble And repentance in us. He dwells both in the high place and with those who are lowly and contrite in heart. We cannot have one without the other. Let me take a moment to to invite us to see the beauty of this God who dwells in a high and holy place and also with him who is lowly and contrite in spirit. If we only see God as a God who dwells in a high and holy place, we have no hope. We could never meet up to the standard, his standard. We would be crushed eternally in our struggles and sins and our failures. And that's that's what's going to happen if we have a God who only dwells in the high and holy place. On the other hand, if we have a God who only dwells with the lowly and the contrite, we are bound to take him for granted. If we have a God who only dwells among the lowly and the contrite, we're going to lose our sense of reverential awe. We're very likely to end up abusing and cheapening the costly grace with which he saved us. And so we must always see God as the one who dwells in the high and holy place and also with humble and repentant sinners. This is the wonder of Advent. This high and holy God came to dwell with lowly and contrite sinners. This very God who created all of these stars and galaxies and the entire cosmos, he humbled himself to a virgin-born, tender and helpless infant, the Savior child. Jesus not only dwells with the lowly, he actually became lowly for our sake. For this is how Jesus describes himself. Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Lowly in heart. That's the first thing that I wanted to draw for us. How does God reveal himself to those who are struggling? He reveals himself as the God who dwells in the high and the holy place and also as the God who dwells with those who are of a contrite and lowly spirit. That brings us to the second thing I'd like to draw for us from this passage. What God desires to do for those struggling in faith. This passage paints a moving picture of the tender and compassionate heart of God for those who are struggling. You know, when I began to spend time with this passage as I was preparing for the sermon, verse 18 really gripped my heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal it. This is This is remarkable. God has seen the full ugliness, the full wickedness of our failures, the full darkness of our sins. He has seen it all. He knows it all. And yet, he is committing to heal us. He stands committed to heal us. Even though we may weaken in our own commitment to ourselves, he committed to healing us. This is the joy of Advent. The savior of the world has come to wipe away every one of our sins and failures. Look at God's language of love for those who are struggling. Verse 18, I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. Verse 19, peace, Peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. Verse 13, he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land. Verse 14, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. This is remove every obstruction for people to come back to God. God earnestly desires those who are struggling to come back to him. God is tender and compassionate and full of grace when he deals with those who are struggling. All of this is true, but the story is not yet complete. There is more that God lovingly desires to do with those who are struggling. And as we can see from these verses, even as God loves us, even as God heals us, even as he God. As God forgives us, even as he brings us joy and pre peace, and even as God embraces us, he also does two more things to those of us who are struggling. Two more things. First, he lovingly leads us to see our own sins and inadequacies. He does that. Look at verse 12. The first verse of the passage that we read, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, says God, and they will not profit you. This is a really strange verse. All through the Bible, it is the men, it is men who declare the righteousness righteousness of God. If you read the book of Psalms in the Bible, it is full of men declaring God's glory, declaring God's righteousness. But here, God is declaring the righteousness of a sinful and rebellious Israel. He is declaring the righteousness of sinful and rebellious people. God is kind of being sarcastic here. He's saying, God is calling us out. God is saying, Let me declare all of your righteousness and, and let me see if it's 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 any good. God is saying, I will read out all of your good and intentions. I will declare all of your good intentions and all of your good deeds. They're not going to profit you. They cannot save you. They're just not good enough. So in his love, God will lead us to face and own up our inadequacies. He is going to help us face our struggles, not to run away from them. We so often depend on our good intentions and our good actions to save us. You know, every time we struggle or we we sin, uh, one of the first things that we're going to turn to is hope from tomorrow I'll, I'll be a better person. Right? We so depend on our good intentions and hopefully good actions to save us. This is what righteousness means. All of our good intentions and all of our good actions. But you and I, We have failed in so many ways these past few months and and left to ourselves, we would prefer to brush it aside. We, We would not want, we don't want to deal with our failures because dealing with our failures means to face up to our inadequacies. But God wants to lovingly draw us out to face our inadequacies and to confront our sin patterns. He does this not to make us feel miserable. He does this not to make us squirm in our seats. But He does this because unless we first acknowledge our sins and failures, we can never overcome them by His grace. How on earth are we going to overcome our struggles and failures and sins if we don't even acknowledge them, if we pretend they don't exist? So that's the first thing God does. He draws us to see our inadequacies. Second, God lovingly helps us see that our idols will eventually fail us. Look at verse 13. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Again, God's being sarcastic here. Let them deliver you. You put your trust in them. You believed in them. Let's see. I'm going to wait back. Let me see if they deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. Did we not experience this when the pandemic began and and the lockdown was imposed? And in a moment, all of our careers were insecure. All of our jobs were insecure. Nobody had any guarantee. And while we were trusting in our jobs and in our careers and in our our wealth and our savings, which were wiped out by the crash in the stock market, they couldn't save us. The things we trusted in couldn't save us. It is during deep struggles that we realize that the things other than God that we put our trust in can never be enough. They can never rescue us. Think of the time when Jesus was on a boat with his disciples. Jesus was sleeping and the disciples were doing just fine in their boat until a storm came. Till the storm came, the disciples but actually trusting in the boat to get them to the shore. But when the storm came, when the storm raged and the waves began permilling the boat, only then the, did the disciples realize that the boat was not good enough to save them. They woke Jesus up and Jesus calmed the storm with a few words and he saved them. You see, without their deep struggle in the storm, the disciples would have been happy trusting in the boat. They would never have grown to trust fully in Christ alone. And so, unless we see that every boat that we are counting on will eventually fail us, or we're never going to be able to learn to fully trust in Christ alone. Alone. And as we go through these experiences of our idols failing us, of the things that we put our trust on, letting us down, as we go during go through such times, quite often God still seems so far away. And there is this this intervening period. Our idols have failed us, but God has not yet stepped in to save us. Maybe some of us are, are right in that phase now. This dark gap where we can no longer, we've realized we can no longer count on our idols, things other than God that we put our trust in. But we are not yet seeing God step in to save us. This this dark gap in between these two things where there seems to be no hope. Maybe you're in that, in that interim right now. And you may be wondering, why is God not helping me? You may even be angry with God. You're probably even disappointed with God during such seasons. You may be wondering, why is Jesus sleeping in the storm when my boat is sinking? But God has not abandoned us. He has not forsaken us. He has not deserted us. He has not forgotten us. He is merely waiting for us to realize the futility of our idols before he swoops in to embrace us in his tender love. This is what God desires to do with those struggling with their faith. He loves us, he heals us, but he also helps us see our sins and inadequacies. And he leaves us, He, he gives just a moment when our idols have failed us, But before he has stepped in, so that in that moment of the storm, we learn to trust in Christ alone. That brings us to the third and the last thing that I'd like to draw for us from this passage. How should we respond? How should we respond when God moves towards us in our struggles and in our failures? Think about it what we've been talking about the last few minutes. How do we feel when God, as lovingly as he does it, how do we feel when God makes us face up to our sins and our failures and our inadequacies? How do we feel when God lovingly leads us to see that you are also the reason for your struggles? How do we feel when God helps us see that we are also part, a big part of our problems? Most of us don't enjoy this experience. Quite often, you know, quite honestly, my first inclination is to just run away from this. Just just bury this and, you know, find a movie on Netflix to watch or, or go out shopping or, or, or go play squash. Uh, so I, I have something else to occupy, but I, I don't. Uh, deal with God, what God is working in, in my heart. Most of us don't enjoy this experience. We, we squirm in our seats. We feel terrible about ourselves. We feel like failures. And at the moment, all of us have faced the moment, faced many such moments. The moment when we realized we just haven't been good enough. Forget God's standard. We haven't even lived up to our own standards. These are difficult times. These are painful times. These are times where we feel terrible. As I have experienced that, Woe is me, he cried out in that moment. But our response in these terrible moments is going to shape our earthly destiny. How we respond in these moments is what is going to shape our earthly destiny. This passage shows us two ways in which we could respond. Verse 15 and verse 20. Verse 15, God also dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. So the first response when we find that God has led us lovingly to face up to our inadequacies and struggles, the first response is to humble ourselves and lean on God. Humble ourselves and acknowledge, yes, God, this is my struggle. Yes, God, I have failed here. Yes, God, I have sinned here. This is the lowly and the contrite response to God. God is near. He dwells with people who respond this way. Verse 20 from the passage we read also talks about the other response. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss of mire and dirt. And this verse, I'll help us see that in a bit, is talking about the proud and the haughty who do not come to rest acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is convicting them of their sins. But the wicked are proud and haughty, and and they will not come to rest. They will not come under God's word. They will not come under the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. But they they will roar like the sea, tossing up mire and dirt. There's something really interesting happening as you see these two verses. The first kind of person that we saw, the one who's contrite and lowly in spirit, he or she is no less wicked than the proud and the arrogant person. The lowly and the contrite person is no less a sinner than the proud and the haughty person. We've seen that in the past. I've seen him backsliding, says the law. I see his ways. So everyone God is talking about is, he is wicked. And the, and, and, and the, and the humble person here is, is not any less wicked then the proud person here both are sinners but the only difference is that one is a humble and repentant sinner and the other is a proud and arrogant sinner both are sinners but this passage tells us that god is low, god is close god dwells with the one who is lowly and contrite and, and Repentant, and this passage tells us that the arrogant and the proud, arrogant and proud sinner will never enjoy the peace of God. We see the same all through the Bible. James chapter 4 verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So the question is not whether or not we are sinners. The question is this. Are you humble, lowly, and contrite enough when God lovingly leads you to see your sins and failures and struggles? Or do we become proud and arrogant and deny our sin or pretend that our struggles don't exist or just brazen it out when confronted, when God confronts us with our struggles, with our sin and failure? If we draw near to this God who became Gentle and lowly, if we desire to draw near to this God, who became gentle and lowly, we cannot go to him proud and haughty. Being crushed in our struggles, losing all hope, and hiding and pretending that we're not struggling are just both different expressions of our proud And arrogance are just both two different expressions that we don't want God in our lives. But the God we worship, he dwells in the high and holy place. And he dwells with the meek, the lowly, the contrite, and the repentant sinner. Nothing illustrates this better than the last few minutes before his death. When Jesus Christ, the son of God, lay hanging on the cross, Beaten and battered. Jesus was not beaten for his sins, for they went down. He was beaten for our sins. Jesus was punished, not just by the Roman soldiers, but he was ultimately punished by God, the Father himself. God, the Father, punished Christ, his beloved son, for all of your sins and mine, because Jesus had gone willingly to the cross as our substitute. He hung there in our place. And as Jesus was crucified, the Gospel of Luke tells us, two other criminals were crucified with him one to the right hand of Christ, and the other to his left hand. And, and the two different responses of these two criminals who were crucified besides Jesus mirrors the two responses that are laid out for us in Isaiah chapter 57. Let me read the passage for us from Luke chapter 23. It's there for us on the screen. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and save us. This man is mocking Christ. proud and haughty. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, and he turned to Jesus with a lowly and a contrite spirit. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him truly I say to you today you will be with me in paradise In that moment when Jesus lay hanging on the cross in that moment when Jesus lay dying on the cross and when this man with a lowly and contrite spirit turns to Jesus in that moment more than any other perhaps we can see that this great God who dwells in the high and holy place, also dwells with him, who is of a contrite and a lowly spirit. Think for a moment of the proud criminal who was also crucified with Christ. Beside Christ. He was so close to the cross and yet so far away. His pride, his arrogance was too big a gap to bridge. He was so close to the cross in which Christ Jesus died and yet so far away. That's the difference between a proud spirit and a lowly and a contrite spirit. I think at the end of the year, end of every year, we all whether consciously or subconsciously, whether intentionally or by chance, do end up just, just looking back at the year. Uh, we do end up looking back, introspecting a little bit at least. Some of us do that in a structured manner. Some of us just do it, you know, as and when the thought uh, grips our hearts. As we look back at our failures and our struggles and our sins of 2020, Are we going to be proud by hiding them, by burying them, uh, by ignoring them, by just brushing them under the carpet? Are we going to blame God for our struggles and demand that he help us? Is that the posture we're going to take? Or are we going to be lowly and contrite and humble and repentant? say, Father, forgive me for I have sinned against you. Are we going to be indifferent to the sinfulness that we know exists within every one of us? Or are we going to shine God's light into the darkest areas of our hearts? Are we going to seek the sinful paths in our hearts? Are we going to seek the sinful patterns in our hearts? And invite Jesus, invite his sweet grace to enter, to invade into the darkest corners of our heart. As I close, I'd like to just consider this one simple question. What does it mean for you to be lowly and contrite? How is the Holy Spirit speaking to you now Specifically, how can you and I ask this of myself too? How can I be lowly in contrite and be lowly and contrite in spirit before this God who dwells in a high and holy place and also with a humble and repentant sinner? Let's pray, Father. We worship you and uh. I confess, I repent, we confess and repent that every inclination of our heart is to be proud and haughty and and just get on with our lives, not dealing with, uh, with our inadequacies, even though we know them, just shoving them into a corner, um, not dealing with our sinful patterns, sinful inclinations, even though we know them, we repent, Lord. And this moment, even as we move into communion, we pray by your Holy Spirit, would you uh, so compel us with your grace that we would come running to you, lowly and contrite, humble and repentant, Lord. Crucify the pride that is there in every one of us. Help us, Lord, we pray. We give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.